from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, July 2nd. I'm Marco Werman. It's back to the future for Mexico. Preliminary election results show a return to power for the old ruling party, the PRI. We'll hear from Mexico City and from the border city of Juarez. Also, buying books in Cuba. There's the official book market, and then there's the underground one. Plus, Cindy, Britain's answer to the Barbie doll, may be getting a makeover, but she'll always be old-fashioned. She's your friend. She's touchable. Uh, Everyone needs a bit of a comfort blanket. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Congratulations are pouring in from around the globe for Enrique Peña Nieto. He looks to be the winner of yesterday's presidential election in Mexico. That's according to preliminary official results. The final tally is still days away. But if those preliminary results are confirmed, Mexicans will be having a strong case of deja vu. Peña Nieto belongs to the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. That's the party that ruled Mexico for seven decades under what its critics called the perfect dictatorship. Correspondent Frank Contreras joins us from Mexico City. Frank, remind us first of all who Peña Nieto is. Well, Enrique Peña Nieto is the very glamorous, telegenic, 45-year-old star of the Institutional Revolutionary Party. He was the former governor of Mexico State, and as you know, that's one of Mexico's most populated and wealthy locations. He is basically known as the young face of Mexico's oldest political party. He's married to a well-known soap opera star, and uh, he is now the president-elect of Mexico. What does it mean that uh, a majority of Mexicans have, have gone back to those seven decades and brought it back into the 21st century? From the priest standpoint is uh, evidence that the Mexican population in part seems to believe their message that, that somehow the party has been able to recreate itself. There are people who have their serious doubts about that. Remember, this is the same political party that governed Mexico for 71 consecutive years. And so there was the sense that the PRI represented the authoritarian past of Mexico, a sort of old fashioned political party that used anything that it could to maintain power. It really didn't have a political ideology. It could be left or right, whatever you needed. The most important thing for the party from the viewpoint of historians was its ability to hang on to power and create stability in Mexico as well. Mm. And so there's this sense that Peña Nieto is the new face of the PRI, and he's trying to convince people that the PRI has changed. Right. Well, a big test, uh, maybe the test of the PRI's self-reinvention is how Peña Nieto deals with, with the drug war there. I mean, the main issue in this election, right, was drug war violence, 55,000 people killed since President Felipe Calderón was elected in 2006. How exactly does Peña Nieto plan on dealing with the drug cartels? 
Well, at this stage, he says that in the early parts of his presidency, he's going to keep the military in the streets. That is basically the same thing that President Calderon has been doing. But it seems like one of the very big changes that we're going to see possibly is that he will focus rather than on attacking the the cartels directly. Enrique Peña Nieto says that he's going after the money, trying to track down the money that is coming in as, as part of the massive profits that take place when illegal drugs are moved through Mexico on their way to the United States. You know, Frank, one of the big new developments Mexicans saw emerge from uh, the election campaign this year there is the youth movement, this group, Yo Soy 132, or I Am the 132. Does uh, this movement have the power to make demands on the government now? It really does. I think that that has been one of the things that's really made this election very different from any election that Mexico has ever seen. That's because students have been able to go to the streets and directly criticize not just Peña Nieto, but also, and probably more importantly at this stage, the national media system in Mexico, which was seen as leaning toward Peña Nieto's candidacy and and trying to bring him to power. So there's this idea that major companies in the country, along with the media, were behind bringing him to power. And so will the student movement continue now after the elections? We're told by the leaders directly that absolutely they're going to try to play a role of a sort of government watchdog. That's something that never existed before in Mexico. And so really, this could be quite the thing that that changes the dynamic and the relationship between the Mexican government and the people themselves. Big changes, new changes in Mexico. Correspondent Frank Contreras telling us about them from Mexico City. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be with you. One of the Mexican cities most affected by the violence of the last six years is Juarez, just south of El Paso, Texas. Reporter Monica Ortiz Uribe of station KJZZ's Fronteras desk spent Election Day in Juarez speaking with voters there. At a special outdoor polling station set up at a Juarez high school, out-of-town voters waited up to three hours to cast their ballot. To pass the time, a young girl and her grandmother sat on a nearby park bench playing patty cake. Meanwhile, the girl's father, Carlos Herrera, waited in line to cast his ballot for the eventual winner of Sunday's presidential race, Enrique Peña Nieto. Herrera has dual citizenship in both the United States and Mexico. He lives and works in neighboring El Paso, but came to Juarez just to vote. In both countries, his main concern is the economy. It's the reason he voted for Peña Nieto's PRI party. They wanted to to implement an economic system to help increase employment in Mexico. That's one of the, the biggest problems right now in Mexico. There's not enough employment. Part of Peña Nieto's economic plan is to open the state-owned oil company, Bemex, to private investment. He also wants to reduce crimes like extortion and kidnapping, which cripple the business community, especially in a place like Juarez, one of the city's hardest hit by drug violence. I think it is really important that people feel safe. Norma Reyes is a 19-year-old college student who voted for the first time Sunday. As a young person, security was the top issue on her mind. I want to go out and feel safe and have permission to go to places, you know. 
Reyes and her family voted for Josefina Vázquez Mota, the candidate of outgoing President Felipe Calderón's PAN, or National Action Party. Vázquez Mota ended up in third place in this election. The pro-business PAN party ruled Mexico for the past two administrations and typically has a strong presence in the industrial northern states of the country. But not so much this year. Robert Martinez, a political science professor, is not surprised. Twelve years of the same party. Unfortunately, the people have not seen the politics work in their favor. There's insecurity at a rampage. Yes, without a doubt, people are sick and tired, and they're going to go, and they're going to manifest their vote for another party. Mexico's security dilemma is ongoing and will remain a heavy challenge despite the change in administration. Yesterday at a polling station in the far south of Juarez, head volunteer Javier Puente was busy tearing off ballot sheets for voters. Ironically, he himself was not able to vote. He said his electoral ID was stolen by gunmen Friday night. That's a federal crime. The thieves also stole his car and a stack of ballot sheets. In the past, election day fraud was a serious problem in Mexico when entire elections were rigged in favor of one party. That was certainly the case under the seven-decade rule of the PRI. Even so, Puente says he has faith the electoral system worked in this election. I've witnessed the voting today, he says, and so far it's been clean and transparent. Although Mexico continues to confront many obstacles, maintaining a democracy does not appear to be one of them. For The World, I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe, reporting from Ciudad Juarez. Cubans are still waiting for their chance to vote for a president. This month marks the 59th anniversary of Fidel Castro's communist revolution. In the past few years, the governments of both Cuba and the U.S. have been easing up on restrictions somewhat. That's meant more American visitors and more books from abroad getting to the island, though many foreign titles are still banned. Monica Campbell reports on Cuba's underground book business. If you visit Havana's colonial downtown, you might hit the Plaza de Armas, a leafy square with restaurants, musicians, and booksellers peddling mostly secondhand reads on everything from Cuban ballerinas and Hemingway to Russian-Spanish dictionaries. But one bookseller explains what dominates. Politico. Politics, that's what sells most. That's the priority, he says. There's Che Guevara's Bolivian diary, books on Cuban CIA history, and poetry by Cuba's Jose Marti. This is part of Cuba's state-controlled book world. There are no independent bookshops, foreign magazines are banned, books are curated by the government and generally don't test the communist line. But there is a flip side a small literary underground led by defiant Cubans with private libraries and books swapped on flash drives. Meet the couple Miriam Leva and Oscar Espinosa, both former government officials who split from the regime and became internal dissidents. Their cramped Havana apartment is stuffed with books, from Spanish versions of bestsellers like Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat to literature on post-Cold War Europe. 
There are books that in Cuba don't circulate, that we have acquired because friends have brought them. The couple, both in their 70s, have also rebuilt their library since 2003. That's when Espinosa, who once advised Fidel Castro, was arrested for his critiques of the government. They arrived that night with a ton of boxes, started going through and tossing away books. But I have friends, a lot of friends abroad and here in Cuba. Friends who continue bringing him books faster than the government can take them away. Espinoza shows a favorite, The Feast of the Goat by Nobel Prize winner Mario Vargas Llosa. It's a brutal portrait of Rafael Trujillo, the Dominican Republic's former dictator. Vargas Llosa is a blacklisted writer, according to the Cuban government, along with other famous writers in the world. Espinosa's own book called Cuba, Revolution or Regression, is banned here. In another part of Havana, Giselo Delgado, a computer technician, runs a private library from her small apartment. In 2003, the government cracked down and jailed 75 of the island's dissidents, including independent librarians. Delgado was spared, but remains monitored. This year, when foreign correspondents flocked to Cuba for the Pope's visit, her phone stopped working. For the government, the sore spot is how books get here, through foreigners, from exiled Cubans, sympathetic diplomats. What the Cuban government deems inappropriate is arbitrary. When state police raided her library during the 2003 dissident crackdown, Delgado remembers saying, How could a book by Garcia Marquez be censored? And they said the problem isn't the title of the book, it's you. That's right, says Rafael Hernandez, a political scientist in Havana and government-employed publisher. This is not about all the books they have. I think this is a part of a, a political opposition operation. That's it. The problem is that these book collections are here in Cuba, breaking rules against material that could jeopardize the revolution. Hernandez also avoids words like censorship or banned, but instead insists the real problem is the U.S. embargo. Cuban publishing houses would like to have more titles. The main problem is the money. Delgado, the librarian, doesn't buy that. Money won't put books critical of the Cuban government on the shelves, she says. At issue is what her books surely symbolize, a thorn in the government's side, dissent, and support from the outside world. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell. The underground book scene in Cuba from Hemingway to Carlos Fuentes. You can see a slideshow at theworld.org. Still ahead on the program, just who is a genius on PRI? The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Hong Kong public sent a strong message to China over the weekend. Tens and possibly hundreds of thousands of people marched in the streets saying they're fed up with China's business as usual. That includes the selection of a new compliant Hong Kong chief executive who was sworn in yesterday. Also in the background, the suspicious death last month of a former pro-democracy protester who had spent 22 years in jail. 
The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Hong Kong. In the 15 years since Hong Kong reverted from British to Chinese rule, a few things have changed, but not as the Chinese government may have wanted or predicted. A population once thought to be apolitical and commercially focused has found its protesting mojo. There were almost 1,500 demonstrations in Hong Kong over the past year. Yesterday's was one of the biggest, and it wasn't just about Hong Kong, it was also about China. We think that uh, once uh, the one dictatorship in China uh, remains, uh, Hong Kong people will not gain real democracy. Eric Lai heads the Civil Human Rights Front, which organized the rally. He says under one country, two systems, Hong Kong was supposed to have autonomy for 50 years, even an increased degree of democracy, a prospect that interests many Chinese across the border, too. As we know, there are many uh, mainland people uh, watching our valley uh, through the Internet. And even some of the mainlanders come to Hong Kong uh, weeks ago as a tourist, but they will try to come to Hong Kong to join the rally. And, and they think that this is a peaceful valley for all the local citizens, and this is even a model for China that to promote a democratic movement. The Chinese government had stopped issuing permits for mainland Chinese to visit Hong Kong about a week ago, but some mainland Chinese were still out on the streets yesterday. One was 27-year-old James Zhang, who's from the eastern province of Zhejiang, but who works in the finance sector in Hong Kong. I asked what he thinks of the fact that tens of thousands of Hong Kong protesters can take to the streets peacefully, but that the Chinese government fears what would happen if it allowed the same thing to occur across the border. I think the difference is probably here, people have long been exposed to different opinions, so they want to be do some very uh, aggressive behaviors. But in mainland China, may, maybe not the case. Do you think that they would get very, it would get violent? It's hard to say, it's really hard to say. Do you think that this should be allowed in mainland China? Should. I think to some extent, but... Uh, I, I don't think if it happens, it won't affect much the government policies. It won't have effect. Chinese government policies in the lead-up to a once-a-decade leadership transition this autumn have been to tighten up on the press, the Internet, free speech, and any perceived challenge to its rule. One such challenge came about a month ago from a former Tiananmen pro-democracy protester who had spent 22 years in prison and then gave a defiant interview to Hong Kong cable television. <laughs> Li Wang Yang talked about being tortured, shackled, kept in solitary confinement. And still, he said, to speed up the democratization of China, I won't retreat even if I'm beheaded. Days later, he was found dead in the hospital where he was being treated, with his neck wrapped tightly to a pole with a bandage, his feet on the ground. The death hit Hong Kongers hard. They jeered at the Chinese government's initial claim of suicide, later retracted and called an accident. Many of this week's demonstrators cited the Li Wang Yang case as one reason why they came out. Sixteen-year-old Stone Chen says, I want to know what really happened to Li Wang Yang. The Chinese government should tell us. 100,000 other Hong Kongers signed a petition asking for a transparent investigation. Popular blogger Bei Fang says when he called online for a full investigation into Li Wang Yang's death, Chinese police contacted his parents and said they should warn their son not to do anything controversial in Hong Kong because he still has family in mainland China.
我覺得呢個對於佢哋嚟講係好不可思議個做法。I find it unbelievable and unreasonable. I do everything legally in Hong Kong, and I will proceed to do it without fear, because I want to show them that their threat is useless to avoid them to threaten my family again. Many Hong Kongers this weekend seem determined to show they weren't about to be cowed, not by China's leaders, not by their own new chief executive. As China's leaders try to import more of their political culture to Hong Kong, Hong Kongers are finding ever more reason to push back. They have another 35 years before their relative autonomy under one country, two systems is supposed to come to an end, and even then, it's looking unlikely they'll go quietly. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Hong Kong. A doll close to the hearts of many British girls turns 50 next year. Her name is Cindy. That's S-I-N-D-Y, and Cindy is just a little old-fashioned. The company that owns the rights to her is looking for a partner to give her a makeover, as the world's Alex Galifian reports. Cindy was launched in the UK in 1963, just a few years after Barbie arrived in the US. The name Cindy is derived from Cinderella, and she was designed to compete with the American champion, but conceived with English girls in mind. Cindy was wholesome and demure, with a sweet round face and rosy cheeks. With her bob-style haircut, she was quietly fashionable in a gently swinging London sort of way. Cindy collector Helen Carter draws a clear contrast between that original Cindy and other dolls. With this lovely face, the side glancing eyes, much more integrity to her, she is Cindy. That very first Cindy came with a stripy top, denim jeans, and white lace-up sneakers. The outfit was called the Weekender. She also had Made in England printed on the back of her head. The doll was a hit in the UK. Girls snapped up all the outfits: Pony Club, the tennis-themed Centre Court. And the ever optimistic shopping in the rain, but by the dawn of the 1980s, American shows like Dallas and Dynasty had taken root on British TV screens. Cindy's creators wanted some of that glamour and some of the American market. After all, while Barbie was out with Ken in the Florida sun, Cindy was at home enjoying her new kitchen. Her bacon and eggs really sizzle, and there's lots more from her new electronic cooker. So Cindy got a makeover, face and all. She was made to look more like Barbie. Barbie took her to court, and so Cindy's face had to be changed again. Poor thing. Here's collector Helen Carter. In fact, she doesn't look human. She looks more like an alien. To add insult to injury, and despite the addition of day glow leggings and long blonde hair, Cindy still couldn't get out of the kitchen. Well, at least she had a microwave. In any case, Cindy just wasn't able to compete with the anatomy-defying, pneumatic appeal of Barbie. Then again, Barbie herself has had a hard time keeping up with a more recent arrival: the wide-eyed and many say hypersexualized dolls known as brats. Now, the British owners of Cindy say they don't want to play that game anymore. Cindy says Jerry Reynolds of Pedigree Toys is first and foremost just there for you. She is your friend. She's touchable. Uh, everyone needs a bit of a comfort blanket. Maybe so, and maybe there is a market for a modern-day wholesome doll. Pedigree Toys has a series of new prototypes. It's hoping some big retailer will snap up. But I can't help but think, let Cindy sleep. She must be exhausted. 
for the world. I'm Alex Galifant. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, why Islamist rebels in Mali are destroying the historic tombs of saints revered by locals in Timbuktu. You may or may not believe this or accept this uh, as a Muslim, as part of Islam or not, but it is a completely different thing to then proceed against the will of the people to its destruction. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Islamic militants are taking aim at historic sites in the West African nation of Mali. The militants are reportedly destroying the tombs of local saints in the ancient city of Timbuktu. They've used pickaxes to break down the door of a 15th-century mosque where some of the saints were buried. The attackers belong to the Ansar Dean group, which is thought to have links to al-Qaeda. Shamil Jeppi heads the Timbuktu Manuscripts Project at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's visited the shrines in Timbuktu many times. The destruction of the burial places of these saints are immensely offensive to the locals. I mean, any uh, authority that imagines it will have any legitimacy over the long term or short term would not do such a thing. There was this one mosque, the 15th century city, Yaya Mosque, where the door was actually smashed and they, the, the militants of Ansardin came with pickaxes crying Allah and broke down the door. And some of the people yeah. watching began to cry. Why does this door evoke such strong feelings? I've been to Sidi Yahya Mosque um, a number of times and I knew the imam of, uh, of the mosque quite well, a pleasant old man who died some years ago. I still know his family. The imam of the mosque at the time was the first keeper of the Ahmad Baba library, manuscript library, which is now the major repository of manuscripts in Timbuktu. And apparently there is a door that was left closed and that would be left closed until the end of time. You may or may not believe this or accept this uh, as a Muslim, as part of Islam or not, but it is a completely different thing to then proceed against the will of the people, to its destruction. Mm. And why do these militant Islamists want to destroy these shrines? From their theological perspective, it is the most heinous sin to uh, make a partner with Allah or with God. Uh, And they believe that these uh, sites are not merely sites of commemoration and of spiritual uh, participation uh, in the presence of a a a holy person, but that people are actually going there to worship these things. Shamil, how used is Timbuktu to this kind of destructive behavior? I know they've been under the the, the thumb of Ansardine since March, but will the people now turn on Ansardine because they went too far with this destruction? Look, Timbuktu has, has had an interesting history, but we don't have any evidence of such destruction, even in those periods of so-called anarchy, when there was no central power. The uh, question is, what is the capital Bamako and the civil and military authorities going to do? 
Let me just ask you about UNESCO. They're very concerned right now about Timbuktu. It's a World Heritage Site. What sort of artifacts and manuscripts might be endangered at this very moment? Well, you know, the whole town is considered a World Heritage Site. There are um, three mosques, um, Madrid mosques. These are uh, quite amazing stat- um, buildings, and they have to be reinforced annually, and there are festivals. So it's an important center. Then, of course, Timbuktu has tens of thousands of manuscripts of Manuscripts written in the Arabic script, but also written in local African languages. There are at least 24 libraries in and around Timbuktu. Uh, Many of the library owners have left and rushed out of town. They've locked up the items. The danger is that these items are going to wither away. They're going to disappear. They may be stolen. Shamil, if there were one thing you could rush in and save one manuscript, what would it be? Oh, well, you know, I've always been fascinated by a couple of manuscripts that I've been shown, but we have never been able to handle. And that is reported to be the first Quran from Timbuktu. I mean, we have to take this at face value, but it is said to be a 13th century text. And there are other beautiful manuscripts, but they are in such precarious condition. I mean, they can't be lifted up. They will just uh, disintegrate. It's all in a worrying state at the moment. Dr. Shamil Jeppi, the team leader of Timbuktu Manuscripts Project at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, speaking with us about Timbuktu and the current troubles there. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeppi. Thank you so much. The immigration debate is always a hot topic here in the U.S. Now there's a new and unlikely focus for that debate. Shara Bouchard, a former girlfriend of Playboy's Hugh Hefner and a former Miss November. She's Canadian, and she's just been handed an O-1 work visa by the U.S. government for her extraordinary talent. Chris Wright helped Bouchard get her visa. Wright is a Los Angeles immigration lawyer who specializes in work-related cases. The O-1 visa... Uh, was designed to allow people who are at the top of their field uh, to come to the U.S. if they have a U.S. employer willing to file a petition for them. Uh, It's been mischaracterized as a genius visa. The test in the O-1 is whether or not you have risen to the top of your respective field, whether you have a track record of extraordinary achievement in that field. Uh, And it's really very uncontroversial for uh, leading models to get visas to come and do work in the modeling industry. But doesn't the uh, U.S. government literature on who qualifies for an O-1 visa say that it's individuals with extraordinary ability and, for example, somebody who has received an internationally recognized award, such as a Nobel Prize? Does Ms. Bouchard fit that description, in your opinion? Well, she certainly doesn't have a Nobel Prize, and nor would we claim, nor did we claim that she does. But the point is that that's simply not germane to the inquiry. And so, so yes, uh, if one were an engineer, if one were an academic, if one were an AIDS researcher, then those sorts of academic-minded prizes become relevant. They're utterly irrelevant. It's simply the wrong question in the context of a model. Mr. Wright, you're nominally an immigration lawyer. What, what's your role in these cases, including uh, the, the one of former Miss November, Shira Bouchard? Typically what will happen is that uh, either individual clients uh, or sometimes their employers, they will approach us and say, look, this is what we're trying to do. Um, And we say, here are the O-1 criteria. And we then sit and we present to the Immigration Service um, uh, how we feel that they satisfy those criteria. Uh, So the notion that somehow these things are easy uh, or that the current administration is improperly lowering standards is, is again, just an absolute fiction. Do you think a a researcher looking for a cure for cancer and and, uh, a former playmate who's looking to further their glamour modeling career should, should be on the same playing field? 
yes, in Hollywood, it actually matters deeply to the entertainment industry that they have access to the leading people in their field. I find it a little facetious to say, oh, well, that's appropriate that, you know, a technology company should have access to, to top foreign talent, but somehow a top modeling agency or a top glamour publication shouldn't. That, that to me seems condescending and prejudiced. I mean, you sound like top foreign talent yourself, Chris, right? Where, where are you from? Uh, I actually grew up in South Africa, and I uh, came to the States as, as a sort of accidental immigrant. I came here to visit and, and ended up staying and being offered a job and getting very much non-glamorous visas. I, I, I did this the hard way. I would not characterize myself as being uh, extraordinary talent. What I do is, is simply try to explain to people how this immigration system works. Los Angeles immigration lawyer Chris Wright, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, sir. Abortion is illegal in much of the Islamic Middle East, but in Turkey, abortion is legal up to the 10th week of pregnancy. And for the most part, it hasn't been a political issue there. But recently, Turkey's Islamist prime minister publicly called for a ban on abortion. That prompted a heated public debate and loud protests, as Ashley Kleek reports from Istanbul. Thousands of women marched to Istanbul's central square last month. Some of them wore headscarves. They beat drums and chanted slogans. Abortion is a right, they chanted. It's a woman's decision. A few male drivers honked their support and held up peace signs. This protest was one of dozens that sprung up after Prime Minister Recep Erdogan gave a speech equating abortion with murder. He likened it to a botched government air raid that killed Kurdish civilians in the town of Uludere in 2011. People talk about Uludere all the time. But every abortion is an Uludere. Abortion in the first 10 weeks has been legal in Turkey since 1983. Dr. Aisha Akin was one of the people that fought to make that happen. She was the director of Turkey's family planning department in the Ministry of Health. Akin says Erdogan often encourages Turkish women to have at least three children. She's worried that the current Islamist government is trying to turn back the clock on women's rights. I feel really very uncomfortable as a woman, as a physician, as a specialist. If you increase burden on women, uh, you will make the situation worse, not better. We cannot lose this gained rights. Erdogan has called for restricting abortion to the fourth week of pregnancy except in emergencies. Some doctors note that would effectively be a ban, since many women often don't realize they're pregnant until after the fourth week. Dr. Khan Kochtebe has a private OBGYN practice in a suburb of Istanbul. The walls of his office are decorated with hundreds of baby pictures. He says he remembers every delivery. Kochtebe also performs abortions, and he worries that if the government limits access, women would seek out illegal providers, as they did in the past. If only one patient dies because the abortion is forbidden in Turkey, I think it's too much. Only one patient, but it's too much. Normally, if the abortion was legal, she would not die. I think that's unnecessary death. Since Erdogan gave his speech on restricting abortion, Turkish media have published surveys suggesting that his ruling party, the AKP, would lose support, particularly among female voters. And that apparently doesn't break down along secular versus religious lines. Now the government has backed away from its threat to ban abortion, but officials are still talking about restrictions, this time on cesarean births. The rate in Turkey is high. More than 40% of births here are by C-section. 
Officials at the Ministry of Health say they may introduce legislation limiting abortions and C-sections in the beginning of July. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek, Istanbul. As we mentioned, opposition to the proposed abortion law fueled street protests in Turkey. You can see video from the streets of Istanbul at theworld.org. In France, some women who think society is too male-dominated have come up with a novel way to protest. They're wearing fake beards in public. As you just heard there, the group calls itself La Barbe. That means the beard in French, but it's also a colloquial expression, meaning enough is enough. Colette Coffin is with the group. She's in Paris. And uh, Colette, just how male-dominated is French society these days? Well, it looks better because uh, we recently had a new government uh, with uh, equality, women and men, but... uh, we do have a president, a prime minister, man, and then a head of parliament is a man, and all the power is given to men, even in um, theaters, art, culture, sport, everything. We still are very male-dominated. Why resort to protest, though? I mean, that usually indicates that the situation is so negative that uh, it's futile to fight through other means. We focus on men, you see. We use irony and we congratulate them because they don't seem to change whatever happens. Describe for us an intervention by La Barbe. Do you pick an event where there are a lot of men and then a group of women from La Barbe put on their beards and just enter the room? Is that how it works? We just sit down uh, quietly and wait for the people to speak. We, We stand up one by one. And then when we're all uh, up, we just walk on stage and wait until we're invited to speak. And we read the speech we have prepared before, always congratulating men, you know, always saying, wonderful, you've been only between men for the last couple of years, don't change anything. Or we tell them, beware, you've just elected a woman in your midst, and so now you're not so male-minded, uh, you have to stay between you, that sort of thing. Does each member of La Barbe have her own beard, or do you have like a big bag of beards that you just hand well, out at, at meetings? we all have our own beard. Uh, personally, I have two beards, because if you ever try to speak with a fake beard, you will see it's very um, difficult, because Not you easy. get all the yeah. fluff in your mouth. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got a special one, which is very wide open around the mouth, to speak easily. That's funny, but the the thing is, it is very serious. Women pretending to be men because women are not visible, so we want to show they're not there. But in fact, it's a very serious problem. It is a very striking form of protest. And uh, you you put up some videos of your protests uh, with Beard on YouTube. One of them set to this very appropriate piece of music. <laughs> Uh, we've got links to some of those videos as well on our website at theworld.org. Colette Coffin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Viva la Barbe. And we'd like to welcome our new listeners in Illinois bearded or not, hearing us for the first time on WUIS, broadcasting from the University of Illinois Springfield. Welcome. This is PRI.
The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Detectives Lewis and Hathaway are back on the case, battling a crime wave in the academic haven of Oxford, England. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. They're celebrating in Spain today, and why shouldn't they? Their national soccer team just made history. Spain beat Italy 4 to nothing yesterday to win the Euro 2012 soccer tournament. The world's William Troop followed the tournament from start to finish. Uh, William, tell us, first of all, why Spain's victory was historic. Well, they've done something that nobody's done before. This is the first time that a European champion repeats uh, winning the next European championship while at the same time being the World Cup title holders. So they've won three major tournaments in a row, and nobody's done that before. Hope they've got a big trophy display case. Now, there was a lot of talk earlier about Spain losing a step or two since winning the World Cup. How are they looking now? Well, they're looking pretty darn good. Uh, Basically, throughout the first few games, uh, a lot of people were complaining, oh, Spain look boring. They look like they've lost kind of the joy of playing. They look like they're not really uh, into it. And what they did uh, yesterday, basically, was turn that completely around. Mm. They came out and they played probably one of the best games I've seen them play in a long time. And had fun, too. They had great, a great time, uh, you know, tearing the Italian defense apart, which wasn't very fun if you were rooting for Italy. <clears throat> but anyway, <laughs> um, they looked really good. And they, they, I think maybe what they proved was that Spain is still king. And actually... Uh, I think it's best described by the king of Spain himself, Juan Carlos, who uh, spoke to the players upon their return to Spain today to, to celebrate them, and this is what he told them. He said basically, you're good players, each one of you individually, but what you've proven is that as a team, you're formidable, mm. unbeatable. What about the losers, Italy? I mean, they didn't fare so well. 90 disappointing minutes, especially for Italy fans. Yes, and and I'm one of them, as you know. Um, They played a great tournament, but in the final, it kind of all fell apart for them. And they just didn't look uh, a match for Spain. Uh, But they should be be proud. They had a great tournament. They proved that uh, even a defense-minded Italian soccer team can play attacking, uh, entertaining football. They just didn't do it yesterday. Well, the next European Soccer Championship is going to be in another four years, and actually that's what our GeoQuiz is all about. William, want to help me? Sure. Okay, so Euro 2012 was hosted by two nations together, Poland and Ukraine. Uh, How about the next tournament in 2016? That next tournament, Euro 2016, will be hosted by one country all by itself. Okay, William, what clues do you have? Well, for starters, it's a country that borders both of the finalists yesterday, Spain Mm -hmm. and Italy. And like both Spain and Italy, this is a nation that has won the World Cup before. Okay, and how did its team do at uh, Euro 2012 this year? Well, they were beaten by Spain. Okay, true enough, but then again, wasn't everybody. Indeed. Okay, the world's one-man soccer desk, William Troop, thank you. You're welcome. Everybody else, you have a few minutes to come up with the name of the nation that's hosting the next Euro Soccer Championship. The answer is coming up in a few minutes. That victory for Spain on the soccer field provided some welcome relief for the nation. Spaniards are getting nothing but bad news these days on the economic front. One music group, though, in Barcelona has had enough of pessimism. Thank you very much. Los Fulanos have revived an upbeat style of music called Bugalú. The world's Jerry Haddon had the band over to play a little. Normally, setting music to the apocalypse gives you something like this. (laughs) 
This is what musician and composer Nick Cave came up with for the film version of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Pretty spot on, given the story's nightmarish end-of-the-world themes. But here's how Los Fulanos hear the apocalypse. This song is actually called The End of the World. In hedonistic Barcelona, where the sun is almost always shining, even the idea of Armageddon isn't all that bad. Everybody's getting down For this is the sound Cada uno su vida particular ya, ya está bastante complicada aquí en Europa. Está... Bassist Juan Carlos Díaz says everyone's lives are complicated these days. People are down, as is the economy. So why give a negative message? In Los Fulanos' version of the apocalypse, everyone is dancing. God is the DJ. Everyone goes out smoking, singing, drinking, all of the earthly vices. Juan Carlos and three other members of Los Fulanos recently came over to my house in the woods above Barcelona for some pizza and an informal jam session. You can make a lot of noise up here, especially happy noise, without the neighbors complaining. Manuel Dabove is the singer and lyricist of Los Fulanos. He says besides being happy, Bugalú lends itself to humor. Disfruto profundamente de muchísimos otros estilos de música. Me gusta tocarlo y tal. Pero lo que tiene el Bugalú es... Personally, says Dabove, I love lots of different music, but Bugalú is a cocktail of pure pleasure. With salsa music, for example, if you don't know how to dance to it, you can feel sort of left out. And with soul, well, it comes from gospel, which is serious, even when it's joking. But Boogaloo, it has this never-ending frivolity. Everything is cool, but it also has this hard-driving 2-4 punch. And that mix is irresistible. It's a drug. Boogaloo was born among young Cubans and Puerto Ricans in New York in the 1960s. It was a mix of soul and R&B and Latin rhythmic styles like Mambo and Son Montuno. Ray Barreto was one of its early champs. Then the TV show American Bandstand brought it mainstream for a while. Los Fulanos drummer Dani Martí says Boogaloo never caught on in Spain. The Latin music that did get airtime was mostly romantic ballads and syrupy salsa. He says a lot of young Spaniards still think of Latin music as cheesy, easy listening. And so Spain's rebel spirit has always expressed itself through rock and roll. Los Fulanos is trying to create a genre that still never caught on here. The group's first disc is called Si Esto Se Acaba, Que Siga El Bugalú. Or, if this all ends, let the boogaloo live on. And you really do have to applaud their upbeat attitude and sound. These guys are your typical struggling musicians. To survive, they all play in a bunch of bands. When I started in this business 20 years ago, says Los Fulanos Timbales player, Albert Sabate, I was getting about $120 a night. They're still paying the same. But life has gotten a lot more expensive. Musicians in Spain are undervalued. When you tell people you are a musician, they invariably say, but what do you do for a living? But Los Fulanos don't linger on the negative for long. My yard is filled with percussion instruments. We've dragged out the electric piano. The sun's out, the pizza's hot, the beer's cold. A perfect moment for a Bugaloo cocktail. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. 
a video of Los Fulanos jamming in Barcelona with special guest Jerry Am I Holding These Right Hatton on the bongos. That's at theworld.org. No, seriously, Jerry, you got it just fine. Before we go, the answer to our geo quiz, the country that will be hosting the Euro 2016 soccer championship is France. From the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org PRI Public Radio International